This is part one of a three-part podcast. Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, it's recording. Uh, I'm here with Alan Booker. We're going to talk about Chapter 12 of Gaia's Garden. Uh, this will wrap up the uh, review that we've been doing of Gaia's Garden for the whole decade. We, we did the first part of the review uh, of the first, like the introduction and the first chapter in podcast 043 on July 20th of 2011. So, hi, Alan. Thanks for helping me finish this thing up. <laughs> Hey Paul, and uh, yeah, glad to glad to do it. I, Gaia's Garden was one, of, uh, just like many people, was one of my very first uh, forays into reading about permaculture when I just first started, uh, you know, investigating what this crazy thing was, and uh, was very important in, in helping me sort of get my mind wrapped around what it was all about. Yes, it's uh, I, for me. I think it was like book number five or so. In, in permaculture, I started with the big black book, um, the designer's manual, and um, uh, my enthusiasm went through all the books, and um, Guy's Garden was one. But, yes, Guy's Garden is definitely – there's a very good reason. I know that uh, I remember something like 12 years ago being asked the question, like, which book do you start with? And it was at the time you say it was a universal answer. If you're going to start to just be the beginning of permaculture, it's Guy's Garden. Everybody knows that. I think that was a pretty – Yes. I, I think I'd heard that a hundred times or more. Now my answer is a little bit more like, well, if you're doing two acres or more, it's Sepulcher's permaculture. If it's less than that, it's Guy's Garden. That's hmm. that's the answer I give. Do you have an answer like that at all? I think that's probably a pretty good, uh, a pretty good way of looking at it. There's now – been especially over the last three or four years, an explosion of really good uh, authors giving different takes on applications of permaculture in different places, and you know, different people looking at like the design process as a you know, people looking at the growy part of it and so forth. So there's a lot of really great books have started to come on the market, but I think Guy's Garden and the Big Black Book are still two really foundational. Uh, pieces of literature that uh, you can't go wrong with. You know, it is amazing how well Bill Mollison's book, The Designer Manual, has stood the test of time. And uh, I think we should probably do a podcast review of of that. I mean, it's it's just spectacular. Of course, by doing that, we'd effectively be doing uh, a PDC, would we not? Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah, it would be like uh, get get your PDC in an audio format. Uh, that would actually be rather enjoyable. And speaking of PDC, you have taught our last two PDCs here, generally at the end of June. And 2020, uh, you're going to be uh, teaching the PDC here again. It'll be your third, yeah. your third pass. We're doing uh, it again. And it's about the exact same time, the second half of June. 2020. Um, yes. And hopefully by the time that people hear this podcast, we'll actually be selling tickets. <laughs> because at this moment, we're not. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, be on the dailyish email. If you're on the dailyish email, you will get the email that says that we're now selling tickets. Now's the moment. Now's the time. Um, so, and that's going to be, uh, the other thing is it will be at richsoil.com slash pdc.jsp. Uh, where people can go. And this is for, this PDC is different than all other PDCs. And um, we have evolved it. We started off saying that it was on uh, the first year for homesteaders, scientists, and engineers, garden matures. Oh, man, this is, uh, so this is an excellent example of his, of his wonderful writing style, while at the same time, um, this is this is precisely yeah what this chapter is going to go into. 
it touches on to bringing all the pieces together. Um, the next bit I've highlighted is at the heart of any garden or landscape, at the base of the ecological pyramid is soil. Create healthy soil and the rest of gardening simplifies. So there's a uh, lot of wisdom in that one statement right there. Let me tell you. Oh yeah. I mean, if you've got, <laughs> if you've got great soil, everything else becomes easy. And in fact, as, as an example, we'll hear a little bit later in the chapter, I'm going to get to it where, um, uh, there's a description of a garden where they couldn't get anything to grow. It was just, it was just so difficult, so challenging, and they just tried and tried and tried, and then eventually the soil improved, and suddenly it took off. And um, and this is where he talks about "Pop Goes the Garden" is the name of the chapter, and he refers to this action where you where you try and try and try, and you have this pathetic garden and everything, and you're 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 tempted to give up, and then suddenly it pops. And yeah, and he's using the word soil here very specifically. Uh, not dirt. And um, there's a very important distinction to make there because, you know, you start off with this idea that you can start off with almost any mineral dirt that you want in the world. And by engaging the processes of life uh, appropriately to that particular ecosystem, that particular biome, you can build soil. And soil being the mineral components, clay, silt, and sand, with the life and with the organic matter that the life brings. And so, you know, it is the soil, that living, soil is the living thing that is created when you have an appropriate ecosystem surrounding and living upon that layer of topsoil. And so when we say that soil is the foundation of the garden, you can take just about any dirt that you inherit and through appropriate use of fertility building, you can build it into a soil. And that's when things really start to happen and become interesting. Um, I think there's a lot of people <clears throat> that are listening right now and what's going through their head is like, well, maybe your dirt can be turned into soil. And I just want to point out that I was in Seattle a couple of months ago and I drove by a place I used to live at and uh, in Green Lake. It's a neighborhood of Seattle. And um, I remember one of the things there was kind of funny in that um, clearly somebody had made a kind of a driveway on this urban lot and uh, then abandoned it. And so then the driveway kind of went nowhere. And... Uh, so one of the things I did is I built a bit of a hugel culture, including building a bit of this hugel culture right on top of the cement. And when I was there, the <laughs> I kind of wonder if whoever lives there now is frustrated because they can't get rid of this rhubarb and they can't get rid of the <laughs> sunchokes and they can't get rid of all these things that I planted that are still thriving there. <laughs> On and part of it on this cement. So, but yes, the difference between dirt and soil. And so often I hear from people that are gardeners or into horticulture and they keep referring to, they, they say the word dirt when I think they mean to say soil mm -hmm. or they say soil when I think that they mean dirt. And dirt. I think vocabulary is so important here. Soil, soil. And, you know, just the thing that's interesting is just just about any mixture of sand, silt, and clay that you have anywhere on the planet can be remediated into soil. Uh, I have areas here where I live in northern Alabama at the moment where we have this red clay that um, is very, very high in clay content, and it gets packed down to the point where I get to have a pickaxe in order to start to make headway into it. Um, and sometimes that's where I've had to start. And we'll take a penetrometer out and test it. And, you know, basically around 300 PSI of penetration force into the soil is about where soil, where the roots of plants, most plants just can't do that. And I had one spot where we started where 
penetrometer, I stopped measuring at 800 PSI uh, in the top quarter inch of the soil. Uh, it, it was complete red clay. Had been, it, it had been uh, site work had just been done by a site company. Uh, had 30 ton excavators running over it and so forth. And we used a combination of mulch and compost, aerated compost tea uh, for a little while, and then added cover crops. And in four months, uh, the penetrometer read uh, less than 50 pounds per square inch down to three feet in depth. So, you know, yes, you can remediate dirt into soil under amazingly difficult conditions if you follow the way that life likes to work and work with you know, let let the natural ecosystem do the work and encourage it along and help it. It's amazing what you can do. That's a lot of what this chapter is about. How do you, you know, work with that? What's an organized and effective way of doing that, you know, of partnering with the natural ecosystem to make that progress from whatever patch of dirt you might have inherited to rich soil that actually is the foundation of the rest of the fertility of your landscape. It, it does seem to me like a lot of people from the very beginning are, are, are of the mindset of like, I cannot garden uh, for these very, for the, these reasons. Um, it's, it's just not possible or it's, it's too hard. And I, and I kind of think like uh, it is amazing how easy it can be. Um, and it's, and it's about knowledge, really. And, uh, um, and, and I was reading something, uh, earlier today about, uh, somebody talking about, um, uh, fire. So financial independence, re- retire early and, uh, and, and how it applies to divorce. And, uh, and it's kind of like, you know, what's the one thing that you can never lose in divorce? And that is your own personal knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of feel like, so much of permaculture is what you just simply put into your head. And then that is of far more value than money. And when you go out onto a fresh plot, and you apply permaculture, suddenly you have great abundance. And that's kind of like, uh, if, if you want to give a gift to your future self, I would have to say that the best thing is, is really knowledge. All yes. right. Next chunk, uh, healthy soil ensures that the second element of a self-sustaining garden, water, is in abundance. Deep, spongy humus will hold every drop of rain and irrigation water better and more cheaply than any other medium. Deep mulches slow evaporation. I, I just kind of feel like 90% of the people that are into permaculture, the first thing that they want to do is uh, start capturing rainwater off of their roofs. And I, I really wish to encourage them to add organic matter to the soil instead. I, I mean, I kind of like, suppose you do capture the rainwater off of your roof and you've gone out and you've bought a thousand dollars worth of drip irrigation stuff and other plumbing to hook up to that barrel or that tank where the water is stored and you're going to um, uh, drip the, the the water back out. It's like, that's a lot of work. It <laughs> is. Not to mention expense. And a lot of those hoses and stuff are made out of plastic. Plastics, yes. You know, it, it's true. The, the By far, the cheapest, most effective way of storing water for irrigation use is to store it in the soil itself. And even the USDA has now finally admitted that. Uh, they have some new literature out where they've admitted that every 1% of organic matter that you add to the soil will hold at least 25,000 gallons of water per acre. Um, in actually, I think it's slightly higher than that, but they've admitted 25,000 gallons of water per acre. So if you can get your dirt from 0% up to about 4%, which is where the soil life really starts to take off, when you get to about 3% organic matter in the soil, you now have 
a substrate upon which soil life can really start to go to town. If you can get from 0% to 4% organic matter in your soil, which is a very doable, then you just added 100,000 gallons of water retention per acre into your soil for the cost of doing the work to improve your soil. And I would have to say that, that to temper what you're what you're saying right now, I think that most farmland is probably something around two to three percent. Um, magnificent well, garden soil is generally at like ten percent. Yes, and what I would say is I don't call them farms anymore. What you're talking about, they are agricultural factories, um, and this is this is an engineering analysis from my standpoint. There's two different ways of attempting to grow plants. One of them is what I would call chemical cultivation and the other is biological cultivation. And what big ag is doing in our country today is chemical cultivation. They're actually want dirt, not soil. They're using the dirt, the inert, you know, sand, silt, clay mixture as a substrate to hold up the plant and keep it from blowing away while they apply all kinds of water-soluble chemicals to it to try to make it grow. And in that condition, there's almost no soil life because of the chemicals they're putting on it, and their organic matter is going to always be very low. It's always going to be, and 3% is actually impressive to get to that height in a purely chemical uh, outdoor food artifact factory, which is what they're, they're doing. They're, they're, they're not, in my estimation of looking at it, they're not really growing food anymore. They are manufacturing a food-like product on a sterile dirt substrate outdoors um, in order to harvest the sunlight. Um, whereas what we're talking about here and what Toby is talking about in the book is biological cultivation. It starts with building the life in the soil, and this life in the soil will build the organic matter in the soil, which will create better conditions for more, more soil life. And that creates the symbiotic relationships with the plant roots that allow the plants to flourish and to continue to feed additional soil life. You get a positive feedback loop. And now you start to have the organic matter in the soil build. And this is when you hit 10% organic matter in the soil. And that's really... As soon as you do that, by the way, the nutrient density of your food starts to go up. The pest resistance of your food starts to, your food plants, food crops start to go way up. And you get a virtuous cycle. And um, that's really the core idea behind what Toby's talking about when he says the pop goes the garden. The garden actually hits a point of positive feedback loops where the soil is being fed by the plants. The plants are feeding the soil. A virtuous cycle really starts to go, and it takes off. You get to that point where you have enough organic matter, enough nutrient cycling, enough water retention that's been built up in a tipping point, and then it just accelerates away, and that's what we're looking for. That's what the permaculture garden is really aiming to hit when it starts by building that soil fertility. Uh, something around 2007 or so, uh, I, I went to something where Toby was presenting and at this event, he was advocating, uh, like permaculture people should ditch the word agriculture. Like the word agriculture is a horrible, awful word and we should, we should get rid of it and replace it with horticulture. And, Mm -hmm. um, I, at the time, I, I didn't agree with him. I kind of felt like, I think agriculture could still include something that is permaculture. And, uh, in fact, that's kind of where permaculture got the, its root word. And, and I kind of feel like, no, I think that this word's not a lost cause. I think it's still salvageable. But along those lines, I want to try a, a vocabulary experiment with you for just a moment. Um, in fact, in a recent podcast that I recorded, uh, we talked about this a little bit. And, and since that podcast hasn't come out yet, I know you haven't heard it. So, so your, uh, your, your brain has not been tainted by this concept yet. And I want to, I want to see what your take on it is. And that is that, uh, for what, and, and in the world of there's many schools of thought under the permaculture umbrella, I want to propose that 
I feel that my direction is that um, to embrace a, uh, a thought that the phrase permaculture farm is a little bit of an oxymoron and that I wish to, instead of saying permaculture farm, which I know so many people love the idea of a permaculture farm, that rather than that, I want to shoot for permaculture gardens. So emphasis on the plural in gardens, permaculture gardens. The idea being is that uh, rather than a farm, here's a plot of land that has many people living on it. And uh, not all of these people are gardeners, but many of them are. And so, like, if you have perhaps 20 acres, maybe there are uh, eight people living on this plot of land, and five of them are, are gardeners, and there are five different spots that are zone one for those five gardeners. And so this is not a farm. This is permaculture gardens. Um I kind of feel like with farm, then it's like, okay, we've arrived at this land. The first thing to do is to start raping it. And uh, when we're done raping it, we're going to produce a crop, a monocrop, which is going to make us money. And um, whereas with gardens, it's like the first thing we're going to do is feed ourselves. And then maybe someday there'll be so much food that we'll sell the excess. So now, granted, when you say permaculture farm, you're saying Something like, well, I'm still going to make money, but it's going to be less rapey. It's going to be, I'm going to try and, and be, you know, working in concert with nature. And, yeah, there's still eight people on this 20 acres, but they're all going to follow one path on what they're going to do. And we're going to still grow food in rows, even though it's permaculture. And uh, I don't know. It still seems like the primary function is to sell the food first and then take the money and then go buy the food that we, the people living here, eat. Now, granted, there'll probably be a lot of eating that food, but it's like, well, we didn't – there's food that we eat that we didn't grow. And and whereas if it's permaculture gardens, it's, it's – you're going to be focusing on feeding the people first. All right, so this is – this is kind of coming back to vocabulary. And so I've, I've kind of gotten to the point now where I feel like I don't, I personally, I, I understand that other people are going to be into a permaculture farm, but I choose to not pursue personally a permaculture farm. I wish to pursue permaculture gardens. There you go. There's my bomb I'm dropping on you. And now I hate <laughs> to hear your feedback. Uh, so, yeah, you, you love to open up something that could get me talking for an hour and a half. So let me see if I can summarize. I guess the first thing is, yeah, I understand where Toby was coming from with horticulture versus agriculture, because really those terms are used by sociologists in very particular ways. Um, they looked at the horticultural communities as um, a, a close follow-on to hunter-gatherer um, societies in which um, – Cultivation was done at a certain scale and a limited scale. Uh, and the word agriculture has come to mean in that more sociological context, uh, cultivation done at very, a much larger scale. Um, and of course, since the green revolution of the mid 20th century, it's come to mean chemical cultivation by and large, where um, instead of working with the natural ecosystems, what we now think of as a quote farm, has radically changed. You know, in the in the 19th century, if you went and visited a farm, it would have many, many products coming out of it. Uh, it would have had a polyculture of products. Uh, it would have had a mix of animal products and um, plant products, and fiber. You know, fiber and timber and so on and so forth. That was what a farm really consisted of. But when you had the Green Revolution happening in the United States in the middle of the 20th century, that was hmm, that was basically changed uh, by a lot of things that happened with chemical cultivation and by policies that the U.S. government put in place. And um, when the, the, the Secretary of Agriculture at that point in time basically told the small farmers, get big or get out, 
And so today, the vast majority of food-like artifacts that are uh, created on these so-called farms, where they're growing 10,000 acres of soybeans or 20,000 acres of wheat or whatever, um, you know, literally most of these so-called farms produce one product and one product only. Um, they produce a monoculture of it on a very large and industrialized scale. And um, the farmer, so-called farmer, who really is no longer what most people would think of as a farmer, they're more of a, say, soybean manufacturer or wheat manufacturer, whatever their particular product is, or corn manufacturer, uh, they could not feed themselves off their own land. Uh, they don't have the capability. They uh, produce one product in industrial quantities. So they're no longer farming in that sense, in my mind. They are now manufacturing. And, you know, I've been engineering and work with manufacturing processes for several decades. And what they're doing is the same thing that we would do to manufacture uh, a mechanistic product, except they're just doing it outdoors instead of inside in the factory. They're taking the factory outdoors in order to expose it to sunlight so that the plants can still harvest and photosynthesize. Other than that, they, th- this whole thing that we call farming today is, well, that word I think has been hijacked in the last 70 years and made to mean something very different than it used to mean. And um, I think the word agriculture similarly has been pushed in this direction of more and more thought of very large scale manufacturing of a um, chemically cultivated crop instead of what we're talking about here, which is um, you know, you're, you're using the term permaculture gardens. And um, I kind of like that. Uh, I would say that for a lot of people, the word garden probably holds a little bit of the idea of annual production uh, predominantly. Um, and if we could shift that meaning towards a ecological mix of annual and perennial production um, and including uh, animal systems as well, then we're starting to get into something to me that's very, very interesting in terms of ecologically regenerative production of real food, food that's nutrient dense and that the production of which actually increases the biological diversity, fertility, and productivity of the landscape. How do you feel about the phrase permaculture orchard? Um, I kind of know what you think of this one. And um, <laughs> again, it's, it's one of those words where the word orchard has um, had its underlying root meaning sort of shift over the last hundred years where um, conventional agriculture, and I, I actually hate to use the word conventional agriculture. It's not conventional. It's only been around for a few decades. We'll, we'll call it the chemical um, agriculture because it's really, I think, a more technically correct um, like know, description. Um, it has shifted, just like it shifted from polycultures and annual crop production on farms, it has shifted towards quote, orchards that are monospecial, that are, we're going to grow apples, or we're going to grow, you know, uh, almonds, or we're going to grow citrus of a particular varietal or whatever. And so this idea of an orchard, if you looked at orchards several hundred years ago, the idea of growing an orchard that was all one species Uh, that would have been a very foreign concept because, well, without all the chemicals, you couldn't really keep it productive for very long, could you? Um, You're basically creating a pest attractant and a disease attractant. And so they didn't do that sort of thing. But today, when we say the word orchard, most people picture in their mind a monospecies crop. And that, of course, is not in any way sustainable or regenerative. So... If somebody wants to use the phrase permaculture orchard and by that mean a regenerative polyculture of perennial tree crops, then I'm probably not going to yell at them too much. But I do understand that for a lot of people, that term orchard 
may imply something um, that uh, maybe isn't what we want to see in terms of uh, sustainable and regenerative practice. So many years ago, I got an email from Helen Attal, who's been on this podcast many times, um, and uh, she said, you've got to check out this this new movie called Permaculture Orchard. And I said, uh, yeah, just watch watch it to the, se- to the point where you get to seven seconds in and tell me what you read right there where it says, of course, uh, Supreme Executive Producer with Bacon, Cheese, and Sparkles, Paul Wheaton. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <clears throat> and, and, of course, uh, so I was, as much as I'm excited to have, have supported that, that movie, uh, yeah, I, I would prefer that if we could go with something other, the, the phrase permaculture orchard does still to this day strike me as an oxymoron because the word orchard tends to have been grabbed and used as like a perennial monocrop. And, uh, and granted in the permaculture orchard movie, which is a great movie, uh, they, uh, uh, talked about how they always have, um, uh, I think they've got an acronym and I can't remember what it is, but it's kind of like, um, if I remember correctly, it's like something that's an apple, something that is a nitrogen fixer, and then something that is something else. Like I can't remember if it was an apricot or maybe a pear or something, but a different species. There's at least three different species mixed. So it's like, uh, and I'm kind of thinking like, okay, you're moving in the right direction. Just, just go down that road even further. Right. <laughs> You'll find something amazing down there. Why don't we just say it? We're trying to build an ecosystem, a functional yes. ecosystem. And um, I was actually reading some research last night on um, some things that have uh, have happened where they have been, you know, trying to figure out um, how ecosystems form. And Toby actually addresses it in this chapter. So I'm talking about when he says, "Hey, you know, we we are actually talking about trying to build an ecosystem." That sounds hard until you realize that nature wants to create ecosystems if you just help it out a little bit. And um, I think that is really the core idea that you're moving towards when you say let's let's go past this idea of an orchard and move towards uh, let's just call it a perennial ecosystem that happens to be productive in multiple dimensions. It can produce food for us. It can produce habitat for important species. It can produce, you know, all kinds of yields, including, you know, timber and, uh, and craft items and so forth. If we start looking at it and thinking from the very beginning, that's where we're going and understanding that our job is not to build that ecosystem, but to help to create the conditions in which the ecosystem can emerge, then it gets a little less scary because if we had to build the ecosystem, we would have to understand all of the interactions between all the pieces, parts in detail. And it's definitely true. And Toby points it out at the very beginning of the chapter when he says, you know, that the interconnections between the elements are in many ways more important than the elements themselves. That's something that I emphasize in the teaching systems design is that those interconnections are what build resilience in an ecosystem. But the interesting thing is that the dynamics of complex systems are such that when you put the elements together, if they are living elements that are that wants to be part of an ecosystem, they will begin to self-organize in ways that you would never have you know, foreseen or probably don't even fully understand once you're seeing it. And so our job in creating the permaculture garden is to feed the soil, create the foundations from which the ecosystem can emerge, and then just be part of that dance as it emerges and watch and participate and know that it's doing things much more complex than we could have ever really envisioned or probably that we will ever really fully understand. Yeah. I want to pop back just real quick to, to some of the, I wrote some things down while you were speaking earlier about um, some of the vocabulary around agriculture and CAMAG, which by the way, I totally agree with. You use the phrase CAMAG instead of conventional. Um, yes. But, 
But one of the things I kind of feel like is is that there are people that are living in the they're working in a city somewhere. Um, they're part of the workforce, and and they have I have, they say I have a dream of someday being a farmer, and they have no experience. They've they've never been on a farm. They don't know, but they somehow feel this calling, and this is what they they want to leave behind this job and go and be a farmer. But I think that what's in their head is a lot like what we're talking about in permaculture gardening or what you talked about for a farm from the 19th century. Um, but what the reality is, I think that when they see the reality, like if they were to say, I'm going to go visit a farm and, and see what it's like. And because someday I want to be a farmer. And I, I think that they will be shocked disturbed, uh, saddened, um, their, their dream will be dashed, um, as they look upon, uh, a monocrop and, uh, what it takes to, to be that kind of, of farmer. Um, the other, so, so I guess that's item one. The second one being the, the thing that you were talking about, I believe that nearly all monocrops have industrial waste. There's something in what they're doing that generates a product that they got to get rid of. And it's like, whereas in a permaculture system, that waste feeds into the next system. Yes. And it's not a waste. Um, right. By definition, waste is a possibly productive output that by poor systems design was not coupled into the input of another system to be appropriately used. Yeah. And then the final thing I've got is that you can go to places in the United States where you'll be standing there in the end of July, harvest is happening, there's food everywhere, and you're in a food desert. There is food everywhere, and there's nothing to eat. Yes. And so that, it's like I, so this concept of the food desert I think is beautiful. And you're, you're standing at this place which used to have, uh, this massive diversity of things growing and all of that's been poisoned away. And now all that's allowed to grow is this one monocrop. And of course I keep thinking corn and everybody for a hundred miles grows nothing but corn. Corn. And then in order to get food, you're going to have to drive 40 miles to a town and go into a McDonald's. Or you might be able to go into a convenience store and buy something that's called cookies. But mm-hmm. you, they might, you might be thinking like, really? These, you're calling these cookies? Really? I mean, I've had cookies. <laughs> I don't, I don't think these are cookies. This is like something sold as a cookie like product. <laughs> yes. So, you know, I'm looking here, and I'm kind of going back into the book. Here we go. It's on, I'm at the second edition of Guy's Garden here on page 265. He's got uh, a wonderful little simplified uh, diagram of what he calls the producer-consumer decomposer cycle, which is a simplified version of all the trophic layers in the ecosystem, Mm -hmm. Uh, what you call the primary producers, who are the photosynthesizers that create. But, uh, you have the decomposers. And so what you're talking about here in situation where you're doing industrial ag, um, uh, chemical-based ag, you've killed off a lot of the soil microorganisms, uh, including the saprophytes, that is the decomposers. The uh, element of the microbial uh, flora that is responsible for breaking down all of these you know, uh, vegetative wastes, uh, byproducts and returning it into the soil in a way that can be processed back into fertility in the soil. And because what you do when you go into chemical ag is you go in and you start applying all of these, uh, of synthetic fertilizers, which by the way, tend to kill soil life. And then that creates problems. So you start to put in pesticides and herbicides, which, by the way, kill soil life, including all the decomposers. You pretty much have short circuited that cycle um, and you don't get effective decomposition of uh, waste. 
uh, you know, of your, of, uh, you know, the, the plant matter that's being pushed back down into the soil, it just basically breaks the whole cycle. And therefore, if, if you want to know the mechanism, why do this chemical commercial ag always produce waste product? What doesn't it get all of that? You know, why can't they, they recycle all of that back into the soil effectively? It's because they've killed the workers in the soil that would have done that for them. And now you must do the worms work. <laughs> right. Yes, which is the way Sepp Holster would put it. And I think, uh, I think even, or the pig, yeah. yeah. Or I think Dave, Dave Jackie, if I remember correctly, in, um, uh, basically said the uh, burden, uh, shifts to the intervener. Right. You intervened and therefore the burden shifts to you. Now you must now do that work yourself. So, uh, page two of this chapter, uh, I've marked a single paragraph, but as I've said before, these are just pieces. The beauty and effectiveness of the ecological garden is in how the parts are connected. It is the flows between objects, not the objects themselves, that define a natural, sustainable environment. I mean, I think, I think this is like the beginning, like the first draft of like, what is permaculture? Like, yeah, I, I think this is far more understandable than a lot of the things people say when it's like, what is permaculture? This is, this I, I is, think anybody who wants, yeah, anybody who wants to be a really good designer of complex systems needs to take that and print it out and put it on their wall and stare <laughs> at it for a little while. Um, you know, so the, in the last 10, 15 years, this concept of resilience has popped up a lot in uh, design circles. How do you build resilient systems? And as the science of resilience has progressed, they have come to a really interesting conclusion, and they, they, they one of them, the simplified version of it would be to say that the resilience of a system can be oftentimes um, uh, sort of predicted by the level of beneficial interactions between the components in that system. In other words, when you do what, Toby's talking about here, and you build a system in which you allow to emerge all these beneficial interrelationships and flows of energy and nutrient back and forth. When you do that, you are building what we would recognize in modern science as a highly resilient system. And so the definition, technical definition of resilience has a lot to do with how an ecosystem can return to homeostasis after a disturbance. So when something comes in and pushes on it, causes stress on the system, that it will return back towards its normal functioning regime. And, um, you know, when that is present in an ecosystem, we say that ecosystem has resilience. And, um, of course, if you give it too big of a push, you can actually push it over the hill into another regime, which may itself have resilience. And one of the great things people may have seen on that's like pond ecology, where you have a healthy pond ecology and then an algae-dominant pond ecology. Both of those are resilient states for a pond to be in. Right. Once you have a pond into a healthy ecosystem, it's highly resilient against being taken over by algae because – it has it has uh, ways of dealing with excess nutrient, a ways uh, it's it's stable system now. It has resilience, but if you ever push it to the point that it falls over into algae dominance, well, that itself has resilience. Right. It's a system we don't want, but it's a resilient system we don't want, which means we have to work really hard to push it back over. And so our goal here is to. Basically take anything, any system that we are creating, whether it be a garden or aquacultural system or a building system or a community system and build it with resilience so that it can withstand perturbations and return back towards homeostasis 
And it is these patterns of interconnections between elements that helps build that resilience. What is the new natural? What did, what natural did we create? Yes. So then if, so I think that one way of possibly defining permaculture is that you're going to have a gardener who creates something and then they remove the gardener. And so now what is there five years later? And, and I think that's, that's kind of a good part of the study. In your pond example, do you have a pond that is clear and thriving and is full of life? Or do you have something that's putrid? Right. And so, uh, I think, I think that's a big part of it. So if you, if you create a garden, like the one that I created in Greenlight, and then I went back, what, 12 years later, and it was still thriving and produce a pumping out food. And yes. uh, despite the attempts of other people, I'm sure <laughs> to uh, plant flowers or something, <laughs> like, you know, whatever they were trying to do is like, no, no, no. And this cement here, not a problem. <laughs> so uh, what is going to be the new natural state? What's going to be the new default? Yeah. Uh, so I, I do want you, your, your, poking at the edge of one of my personal pet peeves, which is this idea that has been built into a lot of people who've grown up in Western cultures that we as human beings are not part of that, quote, natural, that we are somehow unnatural, and that our um, being involved in an ecosystem somehow makes it unnatural. Um, you know, there are a lot of keystone species in healthy uh, ecosystems, and it is completely possible for human beings to be one of those keystone species whose presence and continued interaction with the landscape actually continually helps the landscape become more productive and, you know, more fertile. And so there's there was sort of this environmentalist vibe that you got from certain environmentalists for a while that was sort of like, well, the best thing that humans could do for the environment would be all just die and go away and, you know, let nature do its thing. And, you know, that to me is not a helpful way of looking at it. Um, at this point in time, we've done so much damage to the ecosystems that we're going to have to be part of the solution. And the good news to me is that we are part of the natural ecosystem, that we have huge creative capacity to restore and regenerate ecosystems, and that the world's most fertile ecosystems will be ones in which human beings have stepped up and taken their place as an ongoing creative and interactive part of that web of beneficial interconnections. And I think that message is something that, you know, permaculture really tries to put out there. And, um, it uh, it's a hopeful message as opposed to one form of environmentalism that says we should all just die and go away and that the best bit of nature is one where there's no humans or, you know, the other uh, extreme, which is, well, we're not part of nature at all. What we need to do is just basically, um, you know, take and, and extract everything we can out of it because its only purpose in existing is to, um, you know, give us what we want and that we have no, we're not part of it. We're not part of that at all, and that we're somehow separate and apart from it. About nine years ago, I went into Missoula to an environmental event, and I uh, had my little camera out, and I thought, I'm going to make a video where people could talk about what are the best things that they could do for the environment. And so I uh, went around, and there's all these people that um, – we're manning these booths about environmental this, environmental that, and all these environmental things. And I would put the camera on them, and I would say, what is the best thing a person can do for the environment? And I think about three-quarters of the answers were die. Mm -hmm. The best thing you can do for the environment is die. And, uh, and the only, the only, the only thing that's going to be better, a better answer is when people would say, First, dig your own grave and then die. Uh, and it's like, and there was a lot of emphasis on not having children because you're dead, uh, things of that nature. And I kind of thought, 
I can think, I mean, I, I guess what I was doing is I was thinking like, I can think of a hundred things you could do to make the environment more better. That make it, makes it worthwhile that you're here. Yes. And as an environmentalist, you give a shit about the environment. You give a shit about other people. You give a shit about the planet and all the people on it. Is there not one thing you could think of that's better than die? I can think of at least a hundred. How yeah. do you, how can, what can I do to make this place better than I found it? Um, better for everybody. Can I cover the footprint of a hundred people? I think I can. And I think everybody can. And to make everything yes. better and make and make nature love us being here. Like they to enter into a romantic relationship with nature so that nature enjoys our presence rather than suffers under the boot on her throat, which is most of Kamak. Yeah, and you know that that whole thing I've in, in dealing with especially younger people that are in their twenties and they're they're kind of inheriting a lot of the mess that's been created, you know, they are, uh, 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 I run into a number of them who have sort of internalized that message that the best thing they could possibly do is die. And it is profound message for them that no, we actually can function as a restorative keystone species in the environment and that there are practical real ways they can do that. And I've had several people in their early 20s that were just right at the end of their, you know, of of thinking everything was hopeless. And that particular message was profoundly life-changing for them, uh, that, that there was something they could do and actually profound, profoundly helpful things they could do. This podcast is continued in part two. Don't forget. Go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.